We're in Ecclesiastes 3. And get to where we're at. I think the, the challenge of Ecclesiastes is that it can be uh, depressing. <laughs> Um, I think if, if Ecclesiastes doesn't depress you a little bit, then you're probably not human. Um, but at the same time, your level of despair in reading Ecclesiastes is probably directly related to the level of which you are pursuing this world as being the be-all and end-all. Once you start having an understanding that this isn't what it's all about... Ecclesiastes becomes a little bit easier to stomach. With that in mind, I think it's it's important just as when we started this series, I, I, I wanted to kind of give you the encouragement of what it's pointing to and how it points us to Christ and how it points us to eternity rather than this temporal world. I just want to do that this morning. And, and so we're going to start in First Peter, First Peter 1. And just as we read through this, we're going to start in verse 3, and as we read through this, just bear in mind the futility that we've covered thus far in the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, and what it is we as believers have instead. So 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even now, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to be to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which you or which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be yourselves holy also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, 
but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown, foreknown before the foundation of the world and has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And I'd just, I'd just point you again that you were redeemed not with perishable things from your futile way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so as we study Ecclesiastes, understand there is an answer and there's a proper response to the futility in which we live. And that, that answer is the, the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Without that, all this would cause great sorrow. And so, yes, as human beings, we are tied to this earth at this time. We are asked to live in this. In fact, Christ himself had to lower himself to come and, and humble himself to be a man. But this isn't the whole point that God had in mind. From the foundation of the world, he had set aside his son to come and redeem us from this. So we start in, in chapter 3, back in Ecclesiastes, verse 1. And, and before I read, just remember, there's, there's a difference between what is happening under heaven, under God's sovereign control, and what is happening on earth. And so we read here, this, this famous passage here, there's an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. And that under heaven, remember, that's, that's under God's sovereign control. This is what takes place on the earth. God grants these things. These contrasting events are granted by God and under his control. A time to give birth and a time to die. <clears throat> a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace, a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. All those things are given by God in His sovereignty over all of humanity and what takes from place from the beginning of time to the end of time. And we look at our own lives, and we look at those around us, and we say, well... I can think of times when men did really bad things. How does that work into this under, under heaven event where all these things happen? How, is, how can you put God into that position where he's the one who's causing these things to take place? And, and probably the best example ever given of that is found in Genesis 50. <clears throat> in fact, we'll be, we'll be thinking of Genesis quite a bit as we look at this, but in Genesis 50, after, after Jacob dies, after Joseph's father dies, his brothers are scared for their lives. He thinks now that, now that Joseph's father is out of the way, Joseph can actually repay them for what he's done to them. And in verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Basically, don't kill us and our families and everything we have. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, 
you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke, to, spoke kindly to them. Just, just remember, they wanted to kill Joseph, and then they wanted to, uh, they decided, well, that's, not, that's probably a bad idea when we can make money off of him. Well, they were just going to then leave him, leave him in a pit, not kill him, let him starve to death. And then they were going to sell them, they decided to sell him off into slavery. And looking at that, Joseph understood that under heaven... All things happen according to God's plan and His sovereign design. And that God intended all those events for good for His people, to save His brothers and to save their offspring and create a great nation. Even though they themselves were full of the most bitter, awful hatred towards their brother. And and I would extend that to their father as well, for they're about to go tell their father that their son is dead. His son is dead. But even in that evilness, God had a plan and God was carrying out His sovereign design in their lives. So then as we turn back to Ecclesiastes 3, in verse 9, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. We see in that example, and I would, I would clump 9 through, through 11 together. My Bible has a heading in the middle of it that isn't naturally there. But verse 9 through 11, we see all the things that God has given man to do, the work which he has done. And if we remember that work that man was given to do was first introduced again back in Genesis when God put Adam to work in the garden. That work which he is to do, he doesn't always get to see the end of things. Now, Joseph did. Joseph knew and understood what end was coming. He knew and understood that you all are going to... um, try and kill your brother, end up selling him to slavery to, to, to produce this effect I'm after. But certainly in our own lives, we can think of examples of extreme pain and anguish and sorrow that we don't have the opportunity to see what it is that God has planned in this side of eternity. God has worked it out that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. And, and if we think of, of that phrase itself, we think of Revelation where, where God declares that He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He plans the end and does so through means that He also plans. We don't have time to touch on the fact how it works out that God is not the author of sin, but just understand the Bible makes that very clear. He is not the author of sin, but he does use the sinfulness of man. And it's probably a good time to to just touch on the fact that this world was subject to futility because of us. We all sinned in Adam, and therefore anything, we, as we look around the world and see the the sadness and, and the hardship and the oppression that takes place, understand that's because of man and what he has done. But it's not outside of, of God. It's not outside of his control. 
I'll just turn there really quick, but just understanding God's role in all of this. The end of Genesis 1, it ends with God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, a sixth day. And yet as we progress, and I think we looked at this earlier, as we progress through time, by the time Paul's around writing to the Romans, talking about the events that take place in Genesis, specifically with Jacob and Esau and the nation of Israel, talking about the, the role that God plays in all these things and how he works all things out and that we don't understand them and we do not see the ends as we're stuck in the middle here. And Paul's response to this is, is found in, in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. As you, as you learn of the sovereignty of God, whether it's the sovereignty of God of the events in your life which takes place, the sovereignty of God in the events of the non-believer's life, the sovereignty of God when it comes to your own salvation, when your own sovereign election, those things. Just remember, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who has been the first to give to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And that just teaches us that as we look, as God has appointed these things to take place in time, and he's given man the task, okay, you're on the earth and you have to work and you have to actually carry out a life. And you do these things and don't always see the beginning to the end. You have to have faith that God knows and understands. We don't get to ask him why in the sense of, I have a better idea of how this should have worked out. Why didn't it do this, Lord? This is how I would have it. For we don't know the mind of God. We can't see everything he can see. We can't know it all. He has everything, made everything appropriate in his time. The word there is actually beautiful. God saw it all and it was good. Verse 12 then. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take away from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what is passed by. Sounds like Confucius speaking here. Can get a little bit, a little bit confusing. So there's nothing to do. There is, there is some value God has given. There's a common grace God has given in doing your work and doing a good job in this lifetime. In a life underneath the sun, in a life uh, that doesn't include God, that's about all you've got, is to rejoice in what good you're able to do. Enjoy the good things God has given, the eating and drinking and the fruits of your labor. That is, in fact, a gift of God. Those things are to be enjoyed. We're, we as believers don't just say, well, well, if it's not each, of any internal value, then it's not good and we should shun it. 
That's not what God is calling us to. He's not calling us to be monastic. He's not calling us to live secluded from the world and trying to separate ourselves completely from it. He's given us some good things, but you have to enjoy those things in the light of who he is and what he has planned and and understand how temporal those things are and not grasp onto those, but instead pursue, as we read in 1 Peter, those things that are, are to come are the things that we find real value in. I know that everything God does will remain forever. Okay, we can hold on to that. We know and understand that. There's nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take away from it. All right, so the eternity that God has planned, the, the forever that God has planned, He's already done, and we can't make it any better. We can't make it any worse. There's nothing we can add or subtract to it. For God is so worked that men should fear Him. Well, what is the fear of the Lord? We've kind of covered that. It's, it's that you need to actually understand that judgment is coming. God will, in fact, look and see what's taking place. We talk about that fear of the Lord being that God is the ultimate one who sees us and, and, and our actions and what we do and then passes judgment on us. In Revelation 22, verse 11, actually, well, verse 10, we'll start there. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. In other words, you, you need to be sure you're listening to this. Don't, don't shut this up and set this, this book of Revelation aside. It, it has, even for today, even as these events are, are in the future, Keep this in your mind. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong and let the one who is filthy still be filthy and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Kind of an odd statement. There's, does anybody know the Johnny Cash song, When the Man Comes Around? Great song. Um, <laughs> quotes this. Basically, it's saying that Those of you who are doing good, continue in doing good. Those of you who are sinning and living a life for yourself, that you enjoyed all of this world and this is what you're holding on to, you just keep doing that. And in the song, it's, and then the man comes around and he will judge. He will give to each one accordingly. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. So render to every man according to what he has done. And that's where we see this phrase, and I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. What you do in this life and how you live this life is going to be judged by God. He has worked out that men should fear Him. Everything that we do will be judged in the end. And that's what verse 15 is about. That which has been already, so things that are in the past, and those things which will be things that are in front of this moment in time that we're in. Those which will be has already been. For God seeks what is passed by. God, at one point in time, both the things in our past and the things in our future, will stand before God and He will seek that which was, has occurred before and He will bring it all forward and show it to you. That is the fear of the Lord. To understand that, it should have an effect on your daily life. It should have an effect on how you conduct yourself going forward. So in man, as he looks at the futility of his own life, he needs to understand that 
This is the beginning of wisdom. He's unpacking what does that mean. It means that God has worked out all things that they're going to occur the way he has planned. But he also is going to hold you responsible for the life that you live. For those who have lived a life devoted to what is corruptible, you will be judged accordingly. For those of you who have lived a life understanding and pursuing good, you will be judged accordingly. Carrying on then in verse 16. Furthermore, I've seen under the sun, there's that phrase again, that in the place of justice there is wickedness. In the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the son of sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath and there is no advantage for man over beast. For all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from dust and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. I've seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will, will occur after him? Again, this, this portion of from 16 to 22 is that earthly perspective, what we see under the sun taking place. And we understand that it's saying that the challenge that we see on this earth, that where there should be justice, there is wickedness. And you don't have to do any more than, I assume, you'd feel free to do so. You could look on your phone and go to, CNN or Fox News or wherever you want to get your information and you can open it up and you can see where there's people that you go, they are a corrupt person and nothing happens to them. In a place where there should be justice, there's wickedness. In fact, sometimes it seems like the more wicked you are, the more likely you are to get away with it. In a place where there's righteousness, there is wickedness. You know, we look at, we look at what uh, the fact that Epstein committed suicide. We're like, no, no way. Didn't happen. Instead, we see a corruption of the justice that should be there. We look at, at the way that, that the sexual sins that take place within places that claim to be the church, both Protestant and Catholic, and in a place where there is righteousness, there is wickedness. And Solomon here says, but God will judge these things. I understand that. That there's a, a time for every matter and every deed is there, kind of referring back to verses 12 through 15. And that's kind of this parenthetical statement that's in the middle of 16 down through 22 as he's, as he's looking around the world. But 16 makes me think of that time again back in Genesis as we progressed forward to the wickedness that took place, especially accelerated by the, the Cain killing his brother Abel and then all of humanity sinking into a level of depravity that, that brings about God saying, I've had enough, I'm going to destroy the whole world except for 
Noah and his family. I'm wiping them off the face of the earth because the wickedness was so pervasive in everything. I think maybe Solomon had that in mind as he wrote this. And certainly we saw that this idea that, that the wickedness of man was so severe that they had their minds clouded from understanding the difference between them and actual beasts. And we certainly see that today. We, uh, somebody, there was a, a cattle truck up near O'Neill, and I have a, um, a friend who's now a doctor up there, and he posted pictures of it, and 20 of the 70 cattle in this truck fell over died. And somebody who's an EMT commented on there that, yes, there's nothing more sad than to go upon a scene where, where you find that these animals um, that were totally innocent and enjoying life are put into this truck and they're died and they're killed in this accident. And I was like, well, actually, <laughs> there, there's worse things that can take place in life. And, and there's a separation between the difference between the fate of man and the fate of beasts. I'd love to tell you that all dogs go to heaven, but they, they don't. There's a difference between the two of us, but man has got that confused. Lowers the value of man and, and elevates the value of beasts so that they sit on the same plane. It's a judgment of God. God tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. God allows man to carry out his sin and it shows them that their fate on this earth is no different than the beasts. And as we had the genealogy after Adam, each genealogy, and each, each generation ended with, and he died, and he died. Man became nothing more than what the animals were. They lived a life and they died. And man also, death entered the world and man lived that life as well. They lived a life and then they died. The fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so the other. All that is vanity. What a terrible thing, way to think of this world and this life. Quite honestly, it may actually give you a little bit of relief to, to block from your mind that somehow this world ends when you, when you die. You go off into oblivion and nothing matters. Ignorance gives a certain level of bliss that can only bring great depression and sadness in the end. So he sees that there's nothing better that man should do to be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? God has separated us from the full knowledge and understanding apart from him of what takes place in this world after we die. None of us gets to go there and see it and then come back and talk to each other about it. All of us have to wonder. All of us can only rely on what's been given to us by God in these days in his word of what comes next. The rest of us, or the, the rest of humanity without that, that's not been given to them. And so they're stuck with this futile life. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then I looked again at the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors was power, 
but they had no one to comfort them. Interesting statement there. Doesn't matter if you're an oppressor or you're the one being oppressed. The outcome is the same. You have no one to comfort you. Why would an oppressor need someone? I get it. Okay, if I'm being oppressed, I need someone to comfort me. Okay, I got that. But if I'm an oppressor and I have the power, this is saying that those people themselves are feeling the futility of this world. They know and they see it too. They understand that they're just working towards their demise on this earth. There's no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. Better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. You know, we think of Job when Job prays back in Job, uh, I think, 3. He goes into uh, some, some poetic description of why it would be better that he was never born. And, and I can tell you that the temptation there is to say that Job is overreacting. But he wasn't as far as how this world works out. And the pain and the suffering that Job went through, that God allowed to take place so that God could show, that God could prove a point to Satan. Job, was, Job wasn't just speaking, he wasn't just exaggerating his position. Better off that he had not even existed than to see the evil activity that is done under the sun without, and remember, Job did not have the knowledge of what was taking place in heaven and how God was bringing about glory for himself. So I understand his, his thoughts and his, his attitude at that time. Verse 4, I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. We see that for sure. Just the idea that every, every work that you do and every skill which is done is a rivalry between a man and his neighbor. And, and we, uh, we know that how does, uh, as iron sharpens, sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. But we don't just see that in in the church, we don't just see that with one another in our spiritual maturity and that process. We see that in life. We see that in sports. All the skills that are developed is because the other, the other team, the other opponent, the person you're racing against or the person you're wrestling, they have these skills and they need to make you better. But in the end, it's all for a perishable wreath. It's all for something that goes away over time. And it's all for something that you're, eventually you're going to find somebody who's better at it than you. This world is, is, is full of people. And I can guarantee you there's somebody out there who's better than you at whatever it is you're pursuing to do. But to contrast that, the fool folds his hands and, and consumes his own flesh. Proverbs 6.10 talks about that. The little folding of the hands, a little bit of rest... And behold, I should, I should turn to it. Proverbs 6.10, I think it's actually 6.10 and 11. This idea in the, whoa, back one too far. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a 
vagabond and your need like an armed man. And it's not that, well, I'm just going to rest and, and relax a little bit and then uh, uh, when it comes time for me to get some work done, because I don't want to, you know, I got to be able to pay the bills at some point. I'll just do that. No, it says if you have this attitude, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, it's not going to be something you decide to be poor. You decide to be a vagabond. You decide to be homeless and on your own. It's that those things come and they, they, they cause that to take place in your life. It comes upon you like an armed man. It actually happens to, to you. It isn't something that's produced by you. So clearly, this same author has talked about what it is to be lazy. And here he's saying that in the next sentence there in, in verse 6, one handful of rest is better than two fistful of labor and striving after the wind. You see, if, if your goal in life is to live your best life now, it's actually better that you just sit there and relax and don't do anything. Don't try. Don't strive. Don't try to be better than your neighbor. Don't do good in sports. Just relax. Because why? There's no, there's no point to any of this. And yeah, the fool folds his own hands and consumes his own flesh. Yes, that's what a fool does, but one handful of rest is better than two fistful of labor and striving after the wind. And again, I looked at the vanity under the sun. So in this life, if this is all that matters to you, then being lazy is actually probably smarter than actually striving. That's really hard for me to say out loud. So... Then again, I looked at the vanity under the sun. And here's, here's the example that he gives of that. There's a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. So the picture is somebody who is just for himself, building up riches and has no satisfaction in the riches that he has. It's kind of like, oh, I've, I finally got this car. I finally got this house. I bought this piece of land. I started this business and I built this business. And now I got to do more. I have to find a new business to go and build. I have to pursue these things. Well, why are you doing it? So that I have them. Well, what good do they do? Well, I can, I can spend the money on other people and, and help them, but that's not what's in mind here. This is just the person who collects for themselves. And they're depriving themselves of any pleasure and any relaxation. And that too is vanity. It's like the collector we talked about last time. The person who just collects. And again under the sun, without any knowledge that you are to do your work heartily as unto the Lord. It's what God commands us to do. Without any of that in our background, this is, this is where we find ourselves. The futility of even labor and work is corrupted. That good thing God gave Adam in the garden to do, go out and name all the animals, take care of the garden, is now no longer of any value without God himself. In fact, you'll remember that after God had Adam name all the animals, he gave him that job to do, and he finished up that job, and 
what did God say about his creation, about Adam? He said, it's not good that man is alone. I will give him a help me. And I would say that that certainly applies to marriage. But I would also say that seeing those people that have been given the gift of celibacy or singleness, um, certainly if we look at the Apostle Paul, who was single, was not married at the time of his writing, the value he had in companionship was a great gift he had. He ends his letters often talking about all the people that are in his life that, that bring him joy and fulfillment in his life as well. So I think it, that need for man to not be alone expands out beyond just the marriage relationship. And that's where, we, that's where we turn next here to Ecclesiastes. After talking about labor and how labor has been corrupted on this, work, on this earth, now we're going to see relationships as well. Labor is a good gift God has given, but to what end? Without Him. Now we see relationships. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one who lift up his command, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And for those of you who think this is all about marriage, you got to do something with this. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So. This is, this is about relationships. This is about the gift that is relationships that are important that God has given. But again, they're set in this futility that takes place under the sun. But it is a good thing God has given to be enjoyed. Then carrying on, we, we go beyond relationships and now we're into the interactions between the larger community as a whole that I think shows the futility that, that is, can be found in relationships. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king even though he is born poor in his kingdom. Now this is people who know far more than I do have a hard time pinning on this, who, who he's talking about. Is this a real honest person or is he, is he talking, is he putting together a bunch of different stories, different people he knows? You can, you can almost try and make this fit certain characters in the Bible, but none of them fit quite right. I think you're better off thinking this is either somebody in a, in a neighboring kingdom that Solomon knew about and he's telling the story. I think that's probably most accurate or um, that this is something that he's just giving an example of. A poor yet wise lad is better than the old and foolish king. So you have this, this man born in a prison, a boy born in a prison who speaks wisely, comes out of the prison, and goes on to become king. It kind of mirrors even the, the story of Joseph. Even though he was poor in the kingdom, he went on to rule and become king. And he's seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. And I would take this to be this, this, 
this young lad who, who comes up, who's young and wise, and everyone throngs to him. The king is dead. Long live the king. Immediately, the, the, the people switch their allegiances from one to the other. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this also, is too, is vanity and striving after the wind. So we see that again. The, the idea of the political... political events that we see in our day and and they certainly saw in those times where the the will of the people they follow the one who is wise and the one and they reject the one who is foolish but eventually they even turn on the wise one the one that that they have placed into power they now remove from power and Solomon looks at it and just says it's so much vanity it it mirrors that, that last part mirrors closely Absalom and Absalom's coming to power in, in, when David was being a, a, a futile and foolish king, allowing the chaos that took place in his family and Absalom comes to the, comes to the throne to usurp his father and all the people thronging to Absalom and eventually they eventually reject Absalom and, and Absalom is killed and David steps back into the the throne and Solomon is placed on the throne. But the point is that the fickleness of man, even in his relationships, even in his politics, it's all striving after the wind. We're all we're all waiting for that perfect king. We every four years we get really excited when we get to crown a new king in our country. And and we we have such great high hopes for that person. But usually by the end of, of four to eight years, we realize that we've done nothing more than elect a man and that the best of men are men at best. And our politics, they too are just striving after the wind. So let's go back to First Peter. First Peter 1 is where we're at. And as we look again, just briefly in closing here, as we look again, it's easy to be depressed by the state of our world. You should be depressed by the state of our world. It's not working the way it was intended to work. It's not moving forward the way that it could work. But all of it was within God's sovereign control. All of it takes place the way it's take place because God is working towards an end. And just starting there in 17 again, if you address the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. There's that fear of the Lord that we talk about knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. What we have in this world and the futility of this world is not what we're about. God did not redeem us with those things to save us to those things. We were redeemed 
with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's the key. That's the key to how is it that we get past the futility of this world. It's understanding that, that you were bought with a price, and that price was the blood of Christ himself. For he foreknew before the foundation of the world. God knew and understand that even before this world was set into motion, the futility that it would be subjected to, that man would fall, and in his fall, he would completely remove the, the probability of the world working as it should. The possibilities that the world had would be destroyed by our sin. He knew that. Christ himself was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God was planning on this redemption. He has appeared in these last times, and last times being the time of Christ and moving forward. We're in those last times. He has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God didn't want us to rely on our own work. He didn't want us to rely on our relationships. He didn't want us to rely on on the politics of the day to bring us happiness and joy and satisfaction and purpose in this life. He, He built this world so that Those of us who are believers look forward to a day of being raised in Christ from the dead to give God the glory because that's where our faith and hope are in. It's to make us turn to Him. So what is our action to be? Verse 22, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again. Isn't that interesting? This, this letter of, that Peter is writing to these people who are persecuted and going through far worse than any of us will probably ever have to experience in our lives. He's saying, okay, you have been bought with a price. You are in this relationship. You are a new creature. You're a new creation. And as a new creation, you have those around you. And there are relationships that are good. Take advantage of that. Do that by sincerely loving one another. Supporting one another. Why do you do that? Because you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, not in the futility of this world that we live in, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. You know this because God has told you how this all works. The word of God. You, every person in this room has been given the word of God. This morning, I have taught you through the word of God. That's the imperishable. You've learned through the word of God, for all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Let's pray.